You are now listening to the November 10th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, and welcome to another program of the Attributes of God. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. So far in our series, we have covered five characteristics or attributes of God that only He has. Today, we will talk about how He can be everywhere all at the same time, His omnipresence or omnipresence. As an eternal and infinite God, He is also not limited by space. He is always present all the time. A.W. Tozer describes God's omnipresence in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and he writes, The word present means close to or next to, and the prefix omni gives it universality. God is everywhere, here close to everything, and next to everyone. This attribute is closely connected to God knowing everything and having all power. So to be everywhere at once, he would know everything and have all power. But he doesn't need to be everywhere to know what's going on anywhere. Does this sound a little confusing? Well, let's clear it up a bit by looking at what the Bible has to say about this attribute of God. In Acts chapter 17, Verses 24 through 28, Paul is speaking to the pagan men of Athens about the God who made the world and mankind. And in verses 27 and 28, he says that they, mankind, would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. In other words, God is everywhere, and in him we live and move and exist, whether you believe in God or not, just like the men of Athens who did not know God. God is imminent and transcendent. He is with his creation and yet far above his creation. But don't be confused. God is everywhere, but he is not in everything. This belief is called pantheism, which believes in the omnipresence of God, but not the person of God. Herbert Lockyer explains, God is a person everywhere, present in location, yet distinct from creation. He is everywhere, but he is not in everything. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, God clearly states, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? God is near to us, and he sees us. 
We cannot hide from him. In Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, David says almost the exact same thing. He writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So according to what David wrote, God is fully present, and it means we cannot run from God. From verse 7. As believers, death cannot remove us from his presence. Verse 8. Distance is no problem for God. If we travel anywhere at light speed, he is there. From verse 9. He is always with us, and he will guide us through life. Verse 10. And darkness is not a problem for God either. He is there during your darkest times in life. From verses 11 and 12. A.W. Tozer wrote, We are never alone. He calms the troubled seas of our lives and speaks peace to our soul. May these be encouraging words for you today when you feel as if you are all alone and in darkness. You are not. God is there wherever you go. Thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to speaking with you again. God bless you. Goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delf and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delf and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delf, the authors of the book, Learning How to Trust, discuss the irony that is in a painful relationship. And last week was really, I think, a testimony to the words of the Apostle Paul and his famous passage in Romans 8. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. Well, this week, we focus on the process of how something so small and so insignificant can become a wild beast over a long period of time. And we start today's conversation with Polly as she shares a personal story of how she slayed her own dragon egg. And secondly, how a dream that she had revealed how she was nurturing other dragon eggs as well. Now, here's Polly Heller on Walking Our Talk. I think it's very possible that we can start out with something that we think that we have control over and it's it can be fairly innocuous and we tell ourselves this is a good thing um for instance i grew up going to dancing school and taking little dance lessons from the time i was three years old i was clumsy and a little bit pigeon <laughs> that's why your mom had you take the dance lessons. yeah so i i tripped over my own toes. I always had uh, band-aids on my knee. We, we have a, this little song that you don't hear so much anymore that went, well, I come from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Well, I always thought it was a band-aid on my knee because <laughs> I was always tripping over my well, feet funny. and skinning my knees. So my mother started me in dancing lessons. And then gradually those dancing lessons became a part of my life it was more than just baby ballet and beginner's tap I was doing acrobatics and jazz and private lessons and dance was something I did all through school and we had costumes and we were on stage and we got a lot of applause and we performed it on television with this in New York City with the Ted Mack Amateur Hour and you get a lot of attention when you're wearing a, a flashy costume and you can kick your legs really high. And I love the attention and and the applause. You know, that's not a bad thing to, to receive uh, praise and affirmation for a job well done and a talent that you've displayed. But when that's taken away, where is my value? What do I have now 
that is going to feed my need for applause. So the need to be recognized for doing something really well became an idol to me. That became my my little favorite, my right? little dragon egg that started to consume me. If I'm not recognized and gaining recognition and applause and praise for looking good, then who am I? What can replace that? Now I have no value if I'm not wearing a flashy costume and doing something that is going to cause people to notice me. So once that becomes my identity, then that has become my idol. That's taken the place of God. Well, we were talking about just being able to rise to the level of the thing in which Mm -hmm. you trust. Well, if that's as far as I could go, when that was gone, then I had nothing left to feed my ego. So where do you go from there? Well, and even many athletes who reach the pinnacle of their career finally get the Super Bowl trophy or whatever it is, and they, they've been trying to do this since they were 12 years old. They get the prize, and many of them say, I mean, in the moment, it's exhilarating. And then, then they have to go home and take out the garbage and deal with their family, and, and they realize, wow, this is just... A part of life this isn't life because life was meant to be enjoyed in the way your creator told you and this is a part of it but this isn't it and when we make what is supposed to just be a part the whole it's empty right it's like that song <laughs> that came out back in the 70s I think that said is that all there is mm. if that's all there is my friend then let's keep dancing and you know something about the blues you know it's like yeah it's like oh (laughs) break out the booze and have a ball like there's nothing left for me you know I've reached what I aimed for and it's far far short of something that's going to bring me lifelong satisfaction and I still have the rest of my life to live and and what I thought I was made for what I thought I was aiming for has turned out once I got to it to be entirely tasteless and unsustainable. Right. One of the illustrations I think is men uh, many times with their work they'll say oh I got those three cars and that plane and that other house for my wife you know she really wanted all this stuff and uh, the wife as I talk to her says no I, I just like to have him at home like actually loving me and caring for me. And so he wants the stuff and says he's doing it for her. She wants him and uh, she's complaining that he's not home and because he's working so hard. And so we end up taking that what was good. I mean, it's a good thing to work hard and and to do the work uh, that you have, but not to have it so consuming that pretty soon you're going off the edge. And so that's the little dragon egg that was good and then pretty soon it becomes a dragon and the work I had a guy one time he said uh, yeah they made me an offer I couldn't refuse and I said so you already make you know a six-figure salary and plenty of money you already have you know two houses and some other play toys and you're saying you have to take this because it's an offer you can't refuse and you're about to lose your wife and your kids like which do you want and he said, no, I have to take the job. 
And he did. And it ruined his family. And he got a divorce. And, and it revealed him. Didn't exactly. It? So he made a choice that revealed what really is the truth. And somebody said, you know, there's a difference between conviction and belief. Belief is something I give intellectual assent to. Conviction is something I'm willing to die for. And I would say also that my convictions are what I really do. I walk my talk. I don't just say that I'm going to do it. So I tell the wife who says, my husband says he's not doing pornography anymore. He's not sleeping with other women. And I, and I said, wait till we see it like three to six months later. I mean, we can tame the flesh for a week or two, but six months later, a year later, are, is he also doing what he says he's gonna do rather than just telling you? Because many women, it's amazing, they will just take whatever he says. I believe him because he's so sincere and he was crying. And I'm going, but what's he doing? Well, he said he slept with her last night, but he says he's changing today, <laughs> you know? And I'm just saying, you know, your trust needs to be based on the truth of somebody behaviorally doing what they say they're going to well, do. And since you brought up the pornography thing, I mean, that's a huge dragon egg. That's one of those things that somebody says, oh, I'm just going to look at this one magazine or I'm just going it's to... not even magazines. It's just on my phone. It's just like... Yeah, it's everywhere. Infusion everywhere. Right. And so a person gets into it and starts Everybody out. Everybody does it's it. Something that, well, it's something that they think that they can control. Yeah. And then it becomes consuming, and it takes over their life. And yeah. go on. Oh, I just I had a counselee that he came in. He said, I've never done pornography before. And uh, one night, I just got on the Internet, saw these pictures. I was hooked. I spent three, four hours my wife caught me. She said, if you don't stop right now, I am divorcing you, and I'm done. And for him, he was able to turn it around and, and do the right thing within a couple of weeks. It shocked him that he was going to lose everything because of this one thing that he had never done, but it hooked him immediately. It intoxicated him. You know, not everyone's looking to end their marriage and life but if they do this one little dragon egg, oh, I'm just going to see what all the guys are saying or just I'm just checking it out, you know. But the brain is amazing. It will just latch on to that stuff. And what was meant to be good and meant to be something to give ends up something that we're taking and using for our selfish interests. I think getting back to the principle of the dragon's egg, you know, I'm just reading here small, tame things turn into big wild beasts mm. and that's you know if it's dangerous it's dangerous mm -hmm. if it's counterproductive it's counterproductive the flesh can only produce the flesh whatever that thing is that you're looking at can only produce itself mm -hmm. okay so um and and look at lucifer i have another statement here god made lucifer but a process made satan now that's a lucifer was the you know the the uh, worship leader of heaven. He was the darling check of heaven. You know, he was the Matt Redman of heaven. <laughs> and uh, are you with me? And what happened was, look, uh, look at this. He wants to be God. He, the choir director wanted to become the pastor. Mm. Okay. And he got kicked out of the church. Okay. Right. <laughs> and a third the of his henchmen. Yeah, yeah. He had yeah. a big church split. He took a third of the congregants with them. 
and so forth. But the whole idea is he was Lucifer. He was one of the big three angels. There was a trinity of angels, as you know, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And so here's the worship leader leading all worship and all of heaven to worship. But the worship leader wanted to be worshipped mm -hmm. rather than God wanted mm -hmm. to be worshipped. Okay. So what happened is that got him into uh, all kinds of trouble. And that process there that moved him from being a worship leader to wanting to be God, it was a process. God made Lucifer, but a process made Satan. A right. root becomes a shoot which produces fruit. Judas had a flesh problem. You know, he was, Judas was mad at Jesus because he, you know, he didn't want to rescue the Jews right away, you know. So then that flesh problem became, then the next step was the devil started talking to him. Then the next thing, Satan entered him. Yeah. But where did it start? All from some little, small, tame, right. forbidden thing. It's a forbidden thing. Right. Yeah, right. And, and, and Amanda was told in the story, in that allegory, caretaker said, Amanda, don't pick up the dragon egg. But she picked it up. And that's what we do. We get told, don't... You know, and Adam was, you can eat of any of the trees. There was only one that he couldn't eat of, but that's the one that he wanted to go for. And uh, the rest is history. And we keep counseling people in the same problems all the time. And what it does, it pulls you back from the tree of life to the tree of knowledge. There you go. Mm -hmm. um, you see, if you think about it, millions and zillions of trees. You can eat all these trees except for one. I just, you know, I kind of give you some type of thing but to check you out, give you choice, because you're made my image, I have a choice, so you're gonna have a choice, okay? So, in any event, where does she end up? Of course, at, you know, at the tree. And, and so, but who was at the tree? The serpent was at the tree. So, you know, it's this very interesting. The devil was in the education department, okay? Mm. So what he wants to do is he wants to give you knowledge rather than wisdom. Wisdom would say, stay away from that thing, it can get you. Knowledge say, ooh, I have a right. It's mine. Mm. It's freedom. I freedom. I'm free person, and the freedom is not having the ability to do whatever you want to do. Freedom is having the ability to do what God created you to do, and there's a big difference. And really, that's yeah, where the joy and happiness that we're looking for in life—it's you being created according to your design. That you're doing what you're designed to do, rather than just you saying, I'm going to do my own thing. Well, if you do your own thing, that's going to end up pretty dastardly. And add a, in the story, Amanda learns a lesson. Do not meddle in the affairs of dragons, for you are crunchy and taste good with ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't uh, remember that line in the book, but I think that's a good line. It's there. It's oh, there. it is? I didn't get the ketchup. <laughs> I'm just looking at my notes. <laughs> but, but the guys, it's really true. We are crunchy and taste good with ketchup, you know, and that, and see, I'd rather not go there. I'd rather, mm -hmm. you know, to me, it's easier to just trust in God and mm -hmm. not in my own understanding. Then worry about, you know, taking this thing into my hand. Right, and one of the things we say in the book, too, is that cute dragons will all, always follow their nature. Yeah. So even though they look cute, and I think that's the devil's uh, deception, is that it looks good. It looks good to the eyes. The Apostle John writes in his epistle of 1 John 2, verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life, that is not from the Father, but it's from the world. It's easy, isn't it, for us to think of these dragon eggs that are so obvious, these 
idols, these little G gods. You know, the, the drinking and the drugs and the adultery. But what about those dragon eggs that are not so obvious? Like the gossip, the overeating. Maybe it's the new car or the new promotion. Man, I tell you, if it's not one thing, it sure is another, isn't it? Well, there are certainly thousands of idols to choose from. And our encouragement to you as you go through this series is to be aware of the slow process of being pulled away in trusting in yourself or trusting in that idol rather than your Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, next week, we'll continue our conversation on learning how to trust by discussing a few things. Number one, how to identify that idol, that dragon egg, so to speak, in the first place. And number two, the four stages of Christianity. To learn more about Dr. Ed Delph, you can visit nationstrategy.com. And to visit Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. There you'll be able to order the book, Learning How to Trust, along with some other resources for you, your family, and your church. And don't forget about Alan's upcoming trust webinars. Be sure to sign up for one of those. You can ask your own personal questions to Alan. Well, on behalf of Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their life. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Biblical Church, based on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, I hope you or somebody around you does, uh, let me invite you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 1. While you're turning there, church, we've walked through 12 traits of a church according to God and His Word. So I want to see if we can remember what uh, those traits are we've walked through. So just kind of call out different ones. So just one at a time. All right, so who, who can name a biblical trait of a church? Prayer. Oh, that's a great one to start with. All right, prayer. So the church is designed by God to, to be dependent on God. We ask God to do in and among us what only God can do. All right, prayer. All right. Leadership. All right. So biblical leadership, pastors, elders, overseers. We talked about how biblical church has a plurality of pastors, uh, not just one person, but a multitude of, of pastors, elders, overseers, and then deacons or deaconesses who are serving in all kinds of different ways in the church. All right. Prayer, leadership. Somebody else said something too there. All right. So expository preaching, but biblical teaching and preaching. So the, I mean, this really, I would say is kind of the first trait of a church because everything else flows from this, the teaching and preaching of the Bible. It forms us as a church. And then somebody mentioned mission. So last week we looked at from Ethiopia as I was uh, standing in a blazing sun on top of a building. And just a little side note, I'm usually pretty tied to sermon manuscript that I have on my iPad in front of me. Well, about 10 minutes into that sermon, I looked down at my notes and it's saying emergency, your iPad is overheating. And it was done. So after that, I was like, all right, spirit help me. And so, uh, so I didn't have any, any help here, uh, a lot of help there. So anyway, we talked about mission, how the church exists, not just to make disciples right where we live, but to make disciples of all the nations. And uh, so the local church exists for the accomplishment of global mission. All right, so that's four. What's another one? Worship. Oh, good. What we, today, we gather together regularly, weekly, to glorify God together with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs that we sing to one another, praying, studying the Word. All right, that's five. Giving. All right, giving, something we just did. So we give of our resources for the spread of the gospel, the building up of the church. So we faith to give. Somebody else mentioned discipleship. So we grow together in Christ. One of the sentences we talked about with the discipleship is we together, we learn and obey the Bible personally and in small and large group communities. So just want to encourage every part of the church to, to be in a place where we are learning and obeying the Bible in our own personal lives and then in a large group community like this and then in a smaller group community where we can really hold one another accountable. So all right, that's seven, I think. Membership, okay, and then coming from that. So membership, number eight, so 
Biblically, followers of Christ are members of churches. They're parts of churches. First Corinthians chapter 12, like a body, church has different parts. And we don't just kind of float from one church to the next or church hop or church shop. We commit our lives to a local church where we grow together in Christ. And then somebody mentioned accountability and discipline flowing from that so that we hold one another accountable. We, what we talked about that week in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6 is we take responsibility for helping one another grow in holiness. It's part of what it means to love people around us is to help them grow in holiness. So accountability and discipline. All right, we got three more ordinances. So as a part of our worship, we regularly participate in the Lord's Supper, and then we celebrate salvation in baptism. Those these two visible pictures of the gospel that God has given us in the church. All right, two more. Evangelism, proclamation of the gospel. So this is really the core, the church is a community of people who know Jesus and proclaim Jesus. We gather together, we sing the gospel, we preach the gospel, and then we scatter apart from here. So just a reminder, like our primary evangelistic strategy in all kinds of different campuses, leading people to Jesus. We hope that in a setting like this, that people will come to know Christ. I've prayed that this morning, people who don't know the life of Christ would come into the life of Christ here. But that's not even primary. Primarily, this whole room filled with spirit-filled followers of Christ is going to scatter around to all kinds of different workplaces, all kinds of different neighborhoods with the gospel proclaiming it wherever it goes. That's how the gospel spreads to the church scattering. So biblical evangelism. All right, one more. Fellowship, you got it. So fellowship, all the, think all the one another's we scripture. Look at their high-fiving in the back. Love one another, care for one another, pray for one another, bear with each other. All these one another. So this is why we want to make sure, to Saul's point in that video that we just heard, that we don't just come to church and say hello to each other and then kind of move on with our lives. Like, no, we, we're intended to be in community where we are caring for one another, serving one another, building one another up, edifying one another, like approaching our gathering and our scattering, saying, how can I live for the good of the the people around me? So these are 12 traits of a biblical church that God has given us in his word. Now, all of that, what I want to do is take all of that and come to two of my favorite verses on the church, about the church, in all the Bible. And those two verses are Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, but we're actually going to start back up in verse 15, because this is a prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, and it's one of two prayers, so in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, and then Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, and they're both great prayers that are probably worthy of meditation, memorization in our lives, because they, they really teach us a lot about how to pray for the church, but I want to read this first one, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, and then I want us to camp out Well, I say in the last two verses, we're actually going to be all over Ephesians, but I want you to feel the wonder of these two verses. So as we think about what it means to be a church, and this is why I wanted to be here in person, because I really want us to think together. So yes, we're in different campuses. Like, what does it mean for us to be the church? And part of my hope in this series on traits of a church is that we might capture in a fresh way, maybe even for some for the first time, the wonder of what it means to be a part of the church. This is so different. The kind of community we experience together in this room is so different than any other social 
club, social setting, anything else in all the universe. This is a uniquely Christ-formed community. And I want us to see the wonder of what that means. So Ephesians 1, let's start in verse 15. Paul, writing this to the church, he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, what we just sang about, seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And here's these two verses. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, fullness of him who fills all in all. I want to show you in these couple verses three truths that in many ways summarize all that we've seen over the last six months about what it means to be a church according to the Bible. And, and they're all over the book of Ephesians. So we're going to turn to a few different places. But I want you to see and feel, I hope in a fresh way, the wonder of what it means to be a part of the church. So if you're taking notes, here's three realities for us as a church family. So one, we have, what does it mean to be a church family? It means we have been united together by the grace of Christ. This is what separates church from any other kind of community in the world. We together are united by one thing, the grace of Christ. So in verse 22, he talks about the church, so who Paul's praying for, and refers to the church as the body of Christ. Now, this is a picture we see all throughout Ephesians. We'll look at it in just a second, where we see this people referred to as the body of Christ. But I want us to pause and think, well, how is that possible for a group of sinners to be called the body of Christ? Part of the purpose that Paul's doing what Paul's accomplishing here in this book is he's saying, together, you're all a part of this body. So the church at Ephesus was made up of both Jews and Gentiles together, and there was actually a lot of conflict and division between them. And so part of the purpose in this letter is to bring them together. You look at the next chapter. Look at chapter 2, verse uh, 14. He starts talking about how Jews and Gentiles have all kinds of differences, but together they come to one another in the church through the as the body of Christ, through the grace of Christ. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, talking about Jesus, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So not Jews and Gentiles, one new man, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. There it is, that picture of body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he's saying, hey, look, together, you are one body. And here's what unites you. Because it's the same thing that unites us in this room. So I imagine there might be Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews in this room. But 
There's also all kinds of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different personalities, work in different places, live in different places. So what unites us as a church? Well, here's the basis of our unity. See what we once were. Stay here in chapter two. In the very beginning of this chapter, Paul starts describing what we once were, what these Christians once were. He says in verse one, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How's that for what unites you? Well, you were all dead in your transgressions and objects of the wrath of God. Talk about misery loves company. Catch what Paul's saying here. Think about it in this room. We were all once dead in sin. Paul says you had no spiritual life. You were dead spiritually. Now, there's not different levels of dead here. You're not kind of dead, more dead, less dead. It's not Jews, you were kind of dead. Gentiles, you were really, really dead. You're, you're just dead, period. Paul says you were all dead in your sins. I, I think about, we were just talking about this. Elijah was talking about this in our, in our worship. I think about funerals I've been a part of for family members, for church members, for close friends. You know, it's a humbling thing to look at, humbling thing to carry like a casket. There's a solemnity, there's a finality there. So brothers and sisters, when, when you think of your spiritual condition before the grace of Christ, this is the picture the Bible gives. You were dead in your sin. You were in the casket, not sick in your sin, dead in your sin. Feel the gravity there. Dead in sin, not just dead in sin, we were living in darkness. The Bible says you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 talks about how eyes were blinded by the God of this world so that we could not see. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul talks about how we were darkened in our understanding. And in chapter 5, verse 8, he literally says, you were once darkness. It's like Jesus' words in John 3.20, we loved the darkness, we hated the light. We were dead in sin. We were living in darkness. Keep going. We were children of disobedience. He says, you followed the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. So think the picture from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, the serpent tempting Adam and Eve to disobey God, Adam and Eve succumbing to that temptation and disobeying God. And in the words of Romans chapter five, we are all children of Adam. So it's not just that we sinned every once in a while. No, it's our hearts were sin-soaked. Our very nature was disobedient toward God, defiant toward God. Think about the statement, the devil, who is at work in all the evil we see around us in the world, all the immorality and deceit and strife and murder, the spirit who's at work in all those things, we followed him. You think, well, I've not, I've not murdered, I've not done this or that. No, that's maybe the danger. Our disobedience was far more subtle. It's cloaked in cultural goodness and even religious self-righteousness. In reality, we were children of disobedience, captivated by sinful desires. We lived among them, Paul says, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following his desires and thoughts. Paul says in Romans 6 that we were slaves to sin, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. 2 Timothy 2.26 says we're like, it's like we were captive to the devil himself. Dead in sin, living in darkness, children of disobedience, captivated by sinful desire, and ultimately, we were doomed to hell. Objects of the wrath of God. 
condemned, Jesus says in John 3.18. An enemy of God, Romans 5.10, James 4.4, the object of eternal wrath. So, brothers and sisters, this is what unites us. This puts all of us on the same plane. Not one of us has advantage over the other. We are not unified because of our ethnicity. Just because we live in the same area, have the same socioeconomic status, we're not unified because of the personalities we have are all the same. We have the same tastes or preferences. What unites us is that we are all desperately in need of the grace of God. That's what brings us together as the church. It's what brought us together in the first place. We were all dead in sin, living in darkness, children of disobedience, captivated by sinful desire, doomed to hell. Every single one of us. But this is the beauty of the book of Ephesians. Because you get to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Yes. So think about what he's done. It's here in Ephesians 2. But then now turn back one chapter to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see this here. So look at Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 3. You know, I have so much to learn and discover, grow in, realize more about what it means to know Christ. But this one thing I have learned, I have learned to speak of my conversion to Christ in passive terms, meaning I did not convert myself to Christ. I couldn't. I was dead. I was in the casket. I was in darkness. I was under wrath, and I wanted to be there, captivated by sinful desire. I did not convert myself to Christ. I was converted. God did a work in me that I could not do on my own. That's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, so he's doing all the action here. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Praise God. Now, do you see what he has done? Like the whole Trinity is involved in this picture. If you're taking notes, follow this. So what we once were, all these things, dead in sin, doomed to hell. What did God do? The Father planned our salvation. He chose us. He predestined us. He's given it to us. And I want to be clear, brothers and sisters, I can't explain these words. I don't wholly understand these words. I can't fathom all they mean. But the reality scripture teaches here is that God has set his affections on you and me as his sons and daughters. That's what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15. You did not choose me. I chose you. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, we always ought to thank God because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, think about this. 
I'm guessing in this room right now, there might be some people walking through some challenges, some difficulties, kind of at a, at a low point in a valley in some way. And I just want to remind you this morning, those of you who are in Christ in a fresh way, I just want to remind you, especially at that low point, just pause for a second. Let the words of Ephesians 1 just soak in before the sun was ever formed. Before oceans were ever poured out on the land, before mountains were set in their place, before a star ever appeared in the sky, before any of that, God Almighty on high set his sight on your soul. He, from eternity past, purposed to love you. Just be encouraged in a fresh way. The God of the universe, his love for you. He saw you in that casket, dead in sin, and he purposed to say life. So how is that possible? How can a holy God do this? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Father planned our salvation. The Son purchased our salvation. The one he loves, in him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption, the word is to buy or pay the purchase price for. He purchased us with his blood. That's what we sang about just a second ago. And especially if you're not a follower of Christ, This morning, like, hear this loud and clear. God loves sinners so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to live the life we couldn't live, a life of perfect obedience to God, not in sin. And then, though he had no sin for which to pay, he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die. It's what we've sung about, in our place. He died for our sin, for your sin, for my sin. Jesus took all the wrath do us in our sin upon himself. And then the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. And now anyone, anywhere who, including today, who turns from their sin, says, God, I need you to forgive me. My sin puts their faith, trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be forgiven of all their sin and reconciled to God for all of eternity. The Son has purchased our salvation. Father planned it, the Son purchased it, and then the Spirit preserves our salvation. The Spirit opens our eyes to this reality, changes our lives, and then enters our hearts. Don't miss this, as a deposit, as a seal that guarantees our inheritance as sons and daughters of God. So Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you, guaranteed eternal redemption. So, and see, see the purpose in all this. Well, why such grace and mercy? Look at the end of every single person of the Trinity, what they do in salvation. Look in verse six. The Father plans our salvation. Why? Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace. The Son purchases our salvation. Purchases our salvation. Why? Verse 12, in order that we, who are the first to open Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. The Spirit preserves our salvation. Why? End of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Glory to God. We were dead in sin, living in darkness, children of disobedience, captivated by sinful desire, and doomed to hell. God set his affections on us. The Father planned our salvation. The Son purchased our salvation. The Spirit preserves our salvation, all for the glory of his name. We are united together by the grace of Christ. So now, catch the implications here. So, Back to verse 22 in Ephesians 1. We are now his body. We're the body of Christ. Verse 22, verse 23. And you see this over and over and over again. You might just make notes in your Bible or kind of underline. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Jesus might reconcile us both to God in one body. Then you get to chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. 
Chapter four, verse four, there's one body and one spirit. Chapter four, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. It's equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another in this body. Then you get to chapter five, verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. You get down to verse 30 in chapter five, because we are members of his body. You see it over and over and over again, like, do you realize this? Just right where you're sitting, Christian, like you are a part of, a member of the body of Jesus Christ. You who deserve to be separated from God forever in all your sin, you are now a part of the body of Jesus Christ. What a picture of, what a powerful picture of unity comes together in the church. We're now his body. And then you, just a couple other pictures you see. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. It says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're his body, we're his building, this whole picture of we're like a structure together. Not talking about a physical building, but a, a structure, a household, like a family. And then we're his bride. This is Ephesians chapter five, we just read it. Real quickly, we're called the bride of Christ. Ah, you realize this. It's good to be part of the church, isn't it? Body of Christ, the building of Christ, the household of God, the bride of Jesus Christ. Could be a part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ on our own. It's all by the grace of Christ, which then leads to, okay, so second realization here for us as a church, according to the Bible, we have been united together by the grace of Christ, and then we've been filled with the power of Christ. Now, I've got to say this where it gets really good, but it's already been really good, but it gets even better. So we are his body, verse 23 says, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that word fullness occurs four times in the book of Ephesians 1, 10, right before this, here, then chapter 3, verse 19, and chapter 4, verse 13. We won't look at all of those. Think about this. What does it mean for the church to be the fullness of Christ, him who fills all? All in all. You've got to pay attention close here because this is simple, but it is glorious. So follow the line of thought here. What Paul's saying is, leading up to this statement in verse 23 in the prayer before this. First, he's saying Christ has all authority. He has all authority. So the, the whole picture leading up to this is Paul giving us a glimpse of the authority of Jesus. Starting all the way back in verse 19, Paul starts talking about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. And then he starts to give us the picture of Jesus. So follow this. So who is Jesus? He is, and Paul says he's the risen Savior. He, he's raised from the dead. Not only the risen Savior, he's the exalted Lord. He's seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all power and dominion. Christ is superior to everyone, everything. He's far above every title, that could, every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So any title that ever be given, Jesus is over all of them. He's the risen Lord, he's the risen Savior, he's the exalted Lord, and he's the sovereign king who reigns over all things. This is awesome thought, like everything in this world right now, everything going on in the United States, pull up your news app, you start flipping through, Jesus is king over everything that's going on in every country in the world. Jesus has all authority over everything. Now what's interesting here though, is in verse 23, Paul doesn't say that Jesus is head over the church. It's not what he says. Now we know he is. I mean, that's part of the imagery of him being head of the church. We know he's Lord over us, but that's not what Paul's emphasizing. Follow this. In verse 22 and 23, it says, God put all things under Jesus's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So the language here is something God is giving to the church. So God has given, follow this, all authority to Christ And then he's given Christ to who? To the church. Like it's a gift to the church. This is amazing. Follow this. So Christ has all authority and the church has the fullness of Christ. Christ fills us. Pluroo is the word there. It means to fill something completely. So don't miss it. The church has the fullness of Christ. It's the same thing Paul says later Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he says, In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So we as the church, follow this, possess all of Christ. So put those two together then, you realize what this means. So brothers and sisters in Christ, like if Jesus, Christ has all authority, and the church is filled with the fullness of Christ, then all the authority and all the earth belongs to who? To the church. Are you catching this? Jesus has all authority. And he shares that with us. Now what what does that mean? Well think about it. All that Jesus has we share in. We share in his resurrection. That's what we just sang about. That's what Ephesians 2, 6 says. We are seated with Jesus in the heavenlies. He has given us his life. His eternal life. His resurrection. Everything Christ has is ours church like we're united with Jesus Christ and everything that he has his righteousness his holiness his redemption his power his authority belongs to us this is breathtaking when you think about it so contrary to the popular ideas in our culture and maybe sadly even in the church the church is not weak the church is not frail fragile stagnant struggling the church has the fullness of Jesus Christ and it's time for us as the church to realize the fullness of who we are and what we have in Christ. In our lives, in our life together, in our lives personally, we have nothing to fear. Those of you who are held captive to fear in all kinds of ways, you don't have anything to fear. We have the fullness of Jesus Christ. We are not powerless before sin. We have power over sin. We do not shrink back from challenges and mission here and around the world. We face them boldly because we know how this story is going to end. Our leader is head over all, and he has said, my resources, everything I have is at your disposal in your life, and your life together in the church. We say this every week when we commission one another out with the great commission. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying that, and Paul's saying it, so make the connection with Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He's, God has given, us, given Jesus all authority as a gift to the church. That 
then leads right into the third realization where you're united by the grace of Christ, we've been filled with the power of Christ, and we are now a display of the glory of Christ. So this is the church. Catch this. Now, and then see the connection here between the, the authority of Christ, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Because Jesus has all authority, it's been given to the church, we go out and we proclaim this risen Savior, exalted Lord, sovereign King over all. The purpose of the church, Ephesians 1.23, says the reason is to fill the earth with his glory. We are, so follow this, we're his fullness. God displaying the fullness of Jesus through us. It's what we see all over scripture. God desires to fill the earth with his glory. Jesus, when he was on the earth, John 1.14, was a demonstration of the glory of God. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. But now, so follow this, so God showed his glory fully in Jesus, in the flesh. But then Jesus left. He's not on the earth right now. He ascended into heaven. He's at the Father's right hand. So how is God going to display the glory of Christ in the world when Christ is at his right hand? So follow this. God brings the people together by his grace, fills them with his fullness, And by the power of Christ, they display the character and the love and the power and the mercy and the glory of Christ to the world around them. Follow this. God's design is to use the body of his son to show the glory of his son to all creation. Do you realize what we're a part of? And we're a part of this divine plan to show the world the fullness of Christ in our community with one another. Look at, turn one other place in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter three, verse 10. This is breathtaking. Listen to this. Well, start in verse eight, just to get the context. To me, though, I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So follow this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you hear that? God intends through the church, through our community with each other, to display his wisdom. What does that mean? It means his, his plan of salvation, his glory in the salvation of sinners, just like we saw earlier. Father plan, son purchase, spirit preserves, all for his glory. So God's intent is to display his wisdom, his plan of salvation, his glory to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Those are words that are used in scripture to describe angelic beings. That includes heavenly angels. One author said, God is educating the angels by the means of the church. But not just heavenly angels. Look over one other place. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Think about this. It will take your breath away if you do. Like God is saying, not just to the angels of heaven, but to the very demons of hell. I'm going to show you my glory. Follow this. How is God going to show his glory in the supernatural realm? Raise them up, seat them with Christ in the heavenlies where they're going to reign with him. And for all of eternity, their lives will be a pronouncement to the hosts of heaven and the devils of hell that God is glorious. And God is gracious. And God is merciful. And God is worthy of the praise of all the peoples of the earth. This is what God is doing that we're a part of. God says in his design, look at the church and you will see my son. This is his body. This is why, brothers and sisters, it is critical 
that we commit ourselves to the church and to being the church according to God's design. You might think, well, can't I display God's glory on my own? And yes, there's a sense in which we're all intended in every facet of our lives to display the glory of God in everything we do. But the message, the clear message of Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 is that God's glory is most clearly displayed not through, follow this, God's glory is most clearly displayed not through you or me, but through us. Not through you or me. Kind of hopping and jumping around and kind of doing life, but through us experiencing Christ-centered community together through his body, the fullness of him who fills everything, every way. God holds up the church and he says to heaven and hell, this is the glory of my son. Look how I chose her, how I care for her, how I teach her, how I suffered for her, how I died for her, rose for her, reigning for her, how I've called her and justified her and cleansed her, and how I'll keep her and glorify her and satisfy her forever with myself. Paul Tripp said, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse and good kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness, and he wants you to be a part of it. That's what it means to be a part of his church, to be a part of this master plan of God to rescue men and women from their sin, transform their lives. God is redeeming people for his glory. And this is why we want to be not just coming, sitting in a seat. We want to experience the fullness of Christ, not just in our lives, not just in our families, but in our family together in the church, united by his grace, filled with his power, and living week after week after week as a display of his glory. I knew what I was going to preach this morning, but I am in a fresh way even right now, just overwhelmed by the wonder of what it means to be part of your body and a part of this body specifically. Just thank you for the grace that unites us in this room. Thank you for filling us with all the fullness of Christ. Help us to live in that individually and together as a church. Help us to live in that. And God, in the process, please, please, please use us as a display of your glory. In this community, God, please, God, that others might know your love and your grace and your mercy, that others might be brought from death to life through our community with each other. Please use us, form us, make us church you want us to be, that we might be a display of your glory to more and more and more people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
hearts of sinful men. God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to Ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.